united with Christ, of whom it is said that we who know you and evidence that love for you by walking in your commandments have a fellowship with you such that you said that you, our Lord and the Father, will come and make your abode in us. How can we fathom these things and yet they are true, yet we have tasted the fringes of their ways in truth, but only a slight bit of the fullness. But we anticipate that great day when we'll know these and the wonder and the majesty and the glory of, of them in their fullness because we will be with you and we will be without sin and we will be with holy angels and streets one day of gold and the glory of the Lord filling the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity and it is the light by which we will walk and live and move and breathe. And so help us to demonstrate that now more and more increasingly as we are sanctified, but keep our hearts longing with more intensity to that great day so that we may be, as your word says, pure even as you are pure. We may be wise and we may be faithful. Use our time this morning as a part of your working in our lives individually and as a body to that end. And we pray this in the name of the one who died and rose again for us, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. All right, we're, as you know, taking a break from Ecclesiastes and we... I uh, began last week what ended up being a two-part uh, message, namely to discuss the fruit of salvation. What is the fruit of salvation? What is the fruit of salvation? I, I opened up last week by uh, mentioning a sermon and a name that many of you are familiar with, uh, Paul Washer, who gave what is called on YouTube anyway, the shocking sermon in which he was speaking to a large crowd of thousands and thousands, largely of uh, youth. And in speaking to them, he was burdened with the reality of their condition and what he saw in their lives to be inconsistent with what they professed by attending church and professing the name of Christ. I want to introduce our time this morning with a brief mention of the end of John Bunyan's book. Some of y'all are familiar with John Bunyan. John Bunyan was an older writer. He wrote a work called The Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote other works as well, but he's best known for his work, The Pilgrim's Progress. It is a story... It is a story that is essentially an analogy in which he talks about, the, with different characters, the journey of the Christian life, both in him coming to faith, and the main character is called Christian, and all the way to his end of his journey when he goes to be with the Lord. And he describes the, at the end of part one, uh, he describes this tra uh, transitioning from this life into the next life as coming to a river on the other side of which you could see the celestial city. The celestial city is heaven, the river is death, and he must cross over with his companion hopeful from one side of the river over to the next where he can reach his journey's end. He sees the river, he is concerned about how he'll get across, but he begins the journey with the encouragement of hopeful. And he does have some struggles, but he reaches the other side. And when he reaches the other side, he is greeted with joy. He's greeted by holy angels. He gets to meet the king of that celestial city. The gates are open and he enters into everything that his heart longed for during his entire journey. Everything that he suffered for, everything that he endured, everything that he had been promised was made reality when he gets to the other side and he enters into the celestial city. However... Previous to him reaching the river, he had some interaction with a man named Ignorance. And Ignorance was, is one who was on the broad path. He was on the broad path. 
He did not listen to Christian's counsel about having the assurance of salvation and participation in the righteousness of Christ. And so ignorance chose to go on his own way as Christian went on his. So when Christian was on the other side of this river, he looks back and he gives this account, and this ends actually the first part of his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. He gives this account. It's a bit longer, but let me read it to you. Now, while I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back, and I saw ignorance come up to the riverside. But he soon got over, and that without half the difficulty with which the other two men met with, that would be Christian and hopeful. For it happened that there was then in that place one vain hope, a ferryman, that with his boat helped him over. And so he, as the other I saw, did ascend the hill to come up to the gate, only he came alone. And neither did any man meet him with the least encouragement. When he was come up to the gate, he looked up to the writing that was above and then began to knock. Supposing that entrance should have been quickly administered to him, but he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, whence come you? And what would you have? He answered, I have ate and drank in the presence of the king and he has taught in our streets. Then they asked him for his certificate, that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled, fumbled in his bosom for one and found none. And then they said, have you none? But the man answered, never a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian and hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and have him away. And they took him up and carried him through the air to the door that I saw on the side of the hill and put him in there. And then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gate of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. And his point there in the certificate that he should have produced would have been the certificate of his participation in the righteousness of Christ. And so here is a man who confidently passed the river of death and indeed faced death head on, certain of his eternal salvation, certain that on the other side he would meet the Lord, the king of the celestial city, that he would be granted entrance into heaven only to find out that he had miscalculated things badly and that he was not, in fact, a citizen of that kingdom and he was not, in fact, a, participation, a participant in the righteousness of the king of kings the righteousness of Christ, and he was forever denied. That is, of course, building in part on the Lord's own parable of those who will knock and will not find entrance because they did not take proper heed during their time on earth to what it means to be a child of God and to be saved. And so that is the reality of this world. That is the reality of this world. A theme that runs throughout Scripture since the fall of man is that there is a kind of nearness to God, there is a kind of religious participation that does not, in fact, demonstrate genuine relationship with God, genuine salvation. And so Christ would warn us greatly, and we are not unfamiliar with the reality that we learn more of final judgment and of hell from the lips of him who is grace incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, than we do from any other source. 
So serious it is to God to realize that he wants none to be deceived. He wants none to be duped. Therefore, we consider what is the fruit of salvation? How do we know that we, in fact, have spiritual life? How can we determine that we, in fact, will not be like ignorance and so many like him who reach all the way to death's door, even at that point, having confidence of entrance only to be denied? Well, that is the topic of what we'll consider and finish up this morning. I want to first remind us of where we covered last week, and I'm very going to very briefly mention these. One, as has already been stated, is that this, there are evidences of, there there are evidences that people take to be certainty of their salvation, which in fact are good things and in fact will be attendant with those who do have genuine spiritual life, but they are themselves faulty ground to take insurance on, to build assurance on. One is visible morality. One can be very visibly moral, even for religious reasons, and yet not have a truly repentant heart in the life of Christ in them. These are listed on the sheet. You had a handout last week. Uh, They were, I think, for many handed out again this morning. Intellectual knowledge. It's possible to know a great deal of doctrine, a great deal of things about Scripture and about Christ, and yet have a heart that is far from Him and not know Him. Religious involvement, church activity, participation with Christian activities is very possible to do and to have and take rest in while, in fact, not truly knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and doing the will of the Father, as Jesus said in Matthew 7. It's possible to have active ministry to do things in the name of Jesus, like those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? It's possible to have a conviction of sin and even an amount of shame and sorrow for it, as we saw in the life of Judas, who confessed his sin, who tried to make restitution for his sin, who felt remorse for it, and who went away grieved knowing that he had betrayed innocent blood, and yet he hung himself and he was a son of perdition. So it's possible to have a conviction of sin that is not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And finally, it is possible to have a time of decision in which there is certainty. The name is signed in the back of the bottle. It's a Bible. It's a certificate that's given to the pastor or whoever the leaders of the church are. And there is an assurance of it, of salvation, because I have signed my name. I made the decision. I can remember it very well. And it was attended with great emotion, actually, like those in Matthew 13 who with joy received the word but never bore fruit. And so they will find at the end of the day that that signed name and piece of paper is insufficient. It does not guarantee that they are united to Christ. So in summary, we could simply say this. It is possible, as God said to Israel through Isaiah and Jesus said to the leadership of Israel during his time here on earth, that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips and their hearts are far from me. And that encapsulates at its core, its kernel, the essence of what it means to be religious and not regenerate and not righteous. So then what is the essence of salvation? And that is the second point we covered. The essence of salvation then can be summed up very simply this way, to love Christ, to love God, to love Christ. There are many evidences of that, some of which we'll cover this morning. There's repentance from sin, there is faith, there is love for the brethren, there is active ministry and so many other things. But at the core of it all is simply this, to love God and to love Christ. That is abundantly clear even to the Old Testament saint. 
You remember the summary of the law and the prophets? Jesus said on this, the whole law and the prophets hang, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the overflow, the offshoot. And everything that is written from Genesis all the way to the end of Malachi could be summed up, he says, in that. In fact, none of that would have to be written if indeed there was a sincere love for God. In the New Testament, that is repeated particularly the second part, assuming having already defended the love for Christ, is that the whole law summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the glory of the new covenant is that that love for God is now located and specified and transferred, as it were, to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God is now, as Christ would say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is in fact what Jesus called the leaders to during his time here. He said in identifying the problem of the apostate leaders, he said in John 8, if God were your father, you would love me. The problem is you have no love of God. Believers are described Preciously, really, by Paul in Ephesians 6, 24. Grace be with them all that love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So that could be summed up in a statement by Jonathan Edwards in Religious Affection, which he's describing how do we discern what is a true movement of the Spirit as opposed to what is false. And in one part of that, he says this, it is doubtless true that the essence of all true religion lies in holy love. Love is not only one of the affections, it is the first and chief of the affections and fountain of all the affections. In other words, it is the fount from which everything else flows, is that there is a sincere love for God, sincere love for Christ. So then the question becomes, how do we know that we have that love? How do we know that we have that love? And then this is where we ended off last week is one is love is in our culture, not only our secular culture, but even having crept within the church, which really turns out to be a, just a kind of another kind of mysticism, is that love is, is almost totally defined by an emotional experience. And that's why music and the arts and those kind of things are very much a part of a lot of contemporary worship. Why? They're trying to create a worship experience, an experience of God. Why? Through manipulating through these other things. Music, if I played it enough time, the right kind of songs, give enough kind of stories, you will weep and feel that you have met with God and yet leave unholy, unchanged, have a wonderful experience that you can talk about and brag about and find confidence while the affections of your heart are no different than those around you, the world around you. There's no deep repentance of sin. There's no love for the word, no love for Christ, no love for the brethren, no desire to be separate from the world so that you might serve Christ more faithfully here. But you had a wonderful experience. The devil is in experience where there is not Christ. If I could borrow from Edwards again, he says, This gracious affections, the higher they are raised, the more is a spiritual appetite and longing of soul after spiritual attainments increased. On the contrary, false affections rest satisfied in themselves. In other words, when it's a false affection, a false emotional experience, it's happy just to have had the experience. It's done. I had the experience. I'm going to hang on to that experience. I'm going to hang on to the tears coming down my face when I sang Amazing Grace or some other song. I'm going to raise my hand and remember that moment when I felt so close to God. And that is the end of it. 
The point here being, no, those are a means to the end. When it's a true experience, because we should have emotions, it leads to greater holiness, greater desire of fellowship, greater desire for the word, greater desire to be with Christ, and so on. And so we noted first then, what is one of the first fruits then of this love? We noted conviction then of sin and confession and repentance from sin within the heart and within the mind, not merely external sins, but those that we have in relation to our motives, in relation to our thoughts. That's where the battle of sanctification comes. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, those are inward realities. Those are our whole person. That is where we long for righteousness. That is where we long to be with Christ. And that's where we, we hate sin. Love arises, I quote, from love arises hatred of those things which are contrary to what we love or which oppose and thwart us in those things that we delight in. A fervent love of God will arise from an a fervent love of God will arise an intense hatred and abhorrence of sin, fear of sin, and dread of God's displeasure. And so if we love him, we both desire him and want to be with him, and we hate those things that hinder that. And this is where we pick it up. What's a third? It's separation from the world. Separation from the world. And we'll be bouncing around a bit, and I'm going to finish up today, so I'm going to go a little bit faster than I would want to, but so it is. First John, First John, chapter 2. We'll have to do a little more than mention some of these, but... 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is written so that you might know that you have eternal life. He states that in chapter 5. That is one of the key purposes of his writing the letter. There was confusion. There were false teachers. There were false ideas of spirituality and what it meant to know God and what it meant to be a spiritual person. John writes to them so that they would not be fooled to what is a false spirituality, but would be drawn into what is a true possession of eternal life. It is quite simply to walk in the light as he is in the light. It is to love the brethren. It is to remain in the truth. And he says here in chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You know, that is, that is incredibly simple, but how we seem to not believe that as a church too often and somehow think that our love for the world, our love for the things of this world and in our day and age, yes, we will go there again, our love for media, our love for entertainment, is somehow it's okay to love that more than it is to love Christ. We are shaped, as we noted last week, so often as a church more by our culture than we are by the word of God. Now, what does he mean here, the world? You know this, but let me just clarify for someone who may not. He's not talking about the world just as the idea of creation. There are several ways this word is used. It speaks of creation, speaks of the inhabited world of God's image bearers, for God so loved the world, for example, he gave his son. It speaks of the world, Scripture does, as the sum total of all physical possessions and positions and pleasure. When Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? All of the pleasures and position and authority, everything you could gain as an image bearer of God from this world, and yet not gain God himself, spoken of in that sense. And spoken of, the world is, as it reflects the spiritual and moral corruption of fallen man under the dominant influence of Satan and fallen angels, demons. 
We somehow seem to have forgotten that too as we think about our culture as though things were neutral, as though music, movies, writing, books, and all of these things are neutral. When Scripture makes very clear that Satan is the God of this world, that he is the Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, that those who are spiritually dead follow the course of this world, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, Ephesians 2. This is the world that John is speaking of here. This idea of the world as it is influenced and designed by Satan himself to do one thing, to appeal to our flesh and make the world more desirable than Christ himself. That's it. He wants to make the world and designs it in such a way that it is more real, it is more satisfying, it more appeals to our fallenness than the gospel would appear to you, than Christ would appear to you. And this, beloved, is not any different than the garden, is it? His, his ways do not change. We are not ignorant of his schemes. God, Eve, has held something back from you that is for your good, it is for your joy, it is for your pleasure. He has put restrictions on you that are unfair, they're not right, they hinder your full potential. You could be so much more, you could have so much more, you could delight in so much more, you could enjoy so much more if you simply would break out of this hold that God has placed on you and step out because he's actually only acting in fear anyway and lay hold of what you have the potential to lay hold of, to know your full potential as a human being. Take of the fruit and eat. See if my words are true. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. And so that's what John is reflecting here. That's what he's reflecting here. And he says, do not love the world. Love the world. For the world is passing away, and the world in its lust that appeal to the flesh deeply Hollywood can produce some of the most sensually appealing material that is humanly possible. It appeals to the flesh. It can make everything look good. It can show all manner of sin without consequence. And that's, and I do stop here a bit because this is where we live and what we face. It can make everything that God says is unrighteous and is unholy and is not good and make it seem good, and then all of a sudden what God says is holy and righteous and good seems boring, strange, or downright repulsive. And it's shown by what we do. So one said this, and actually, uh, this book was written in 1985, I actually just finished it recently, but one says this, all media touch the mind, stir it, move it, mold it, in every way affect it, even when the process is unconscious unconscious. All media, the author goes on to say, all media work us over completely. They are so persuasive in their personal, political, economic, aesthetic, psychological, moral, ethical, and social consequences that they have, they leave no part of us untouched, unaffected, unaltered. We say, how can this cultural moment that we find ourselves in have changed so much from before? Because There is a very designed and intentional plan to shape the way we think about morality that comes from Hollywood. It's not by accident. This is the course of the world. This writer goes on to say, television, again, this was in 1985, television is not just a seller of products to human minds. It is the product of human minds. Public opinion, a, a, a 
uh, uh, journal. Reports of 104 influential TV television or television writers, producers, and executives. Remember, this is 85, so there would be far more. I didn't update the statistics, but this is enough. 80% did not regard homosexual relations as wrong. I'm going to guess that'd be closer to 100% now. 51% did not think adultery was wrong. I'm going to say that's a lot higher. And 97% favored a woman's right to have an abortion. So those are the people who are producing the media that we watch. And so we just need to be aware of that in light of John's words here. Each of these writers, producers, and many of the actors know very well and are very intentional to use the medium of media to influence and shape feelings and thoughts through stories that appeal to our emotions and are designed to shape our worldview and our understanding of morality. And so John says, do not love that world, but you love the Father. And if you do love that world, then the love of Father is not in you. There is no friendship for the believer between what God loves and what the world loves. It's one or the other. And so we need to realize that the world and all that it offers tests and reveals what's really in our hearts. And interestingly, John uses the same verb. You're familiar with this, agapao. That's, he uses it for love for the world and love for God. And he says, so the world's going to test that. And it's going to show up in actions. And so we have to then say, do I love Christ more than the world? What are the loves that rule my heart? What are the loves that rule my inner affections, my inner thoughts, my inner perspective? What shapes it? Do I find myself more shaped by what the world says or by the word of God? Do I find myself more drawn to those things that will teach me scripture or that will appeal to my flesh? Uh, Paul Washer in his sermon said this, they do all this religious stuff, but in their heart, they are nearly as wicked as wicked can be. They, they are no different, there's no difference between them and anyone else in the world in terms of what they love. There's no light. Everything that the world does, they do, and they think is appropriate. That's even worse. Do you look like the world? Do you act like the world? Do you have an experience? Do you have and experience the same joys as the rest of the world experiences? Can you love sin and relish it? Can you love rebellion and relish it? Then you do not know God. You will know them, he's, Jesus says, by their fruits. So one evidence of love for God is that we find that there is, for the Christian, a growing separation from the world. Your affections, as you grow initially when you come to Christ and as you grow in Christ, grow more and more separate from the world. And here's a way that we could think of it. The world becomes more and more strange to us, and heaven becomes more and more real and our home and so that's why the Christian longs for it, because they're like, this isn't my home. I live here. I'm thankful for God's blessing, but this isn't my home. I don't want to be here. I think most of us would say, and sometimes we talk together and we say, I just want Jesus to come, like now, today. Why? Because I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of this world. I just want to be with Jesus. And so there is a separation from the world that we, that we need to see, test our hearts with. Thirdly, and we'll have to move on. How do I know then that I love God? That there is then a hunger for scripture. There's confession of inward sin. There's separation from the world. There's a hunger for scripture. Uh, let me give you just one passage here. There, there, obviously, there's many we could go to, but this one I think gets to the core of it in, in this context. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or excuse me, 2 chapter 3. Uh, Paul is writing if, 
to the church at Corinth. He's particularly here addressing uh, the reality of the gospel, how to discern whether he's bringing the true gospel. And he says, the true gospel I bring, he makes many arguments, but here is because of what it produces in your heart, that not letters written on stone as in the old covenant, but you have letters written by the Spirit. You see transformation. The, the, The gospel that I brought to you brought change in you. It brought an awareness of Christ. And he says this stands in contradiction to the Jews who read Moses, who know the Old Testament law, who hear God's revelation. He says, but they have a veil over their face. They have a veil over their face. And so they read it, but just as Jesus said to the leaders, but you have no love of God within yourself. You read it, but it has no transforming power in your soul. You read it, but it does not draw you to Christ. And then... In chapter 4, he says this. What is the difference, though, for those who truly know God, have been or are known by God? He says this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. A little later, he says, But God, for the believing, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it is a treasure, as he goes on, that we have in earthen vessels. And it is a treasure that we value above anything else. And he says, even my suffering doesn't compare with it because I look at the things which are eternal, not the things which are temporal. To summarize the chapter. And so, there is, for a believer, a desire for Scripture because in Scripture, the glory of God in Christ is revealed. Scripture we come to not as a book, but because we come to meet as some ancient book or some religious text that we, you know, we give half our heart to. But we come to Scripture because Christ is there. We want to meet with Christ. We want to meet with God. We want to learn about him. We want to see his glory. We want to see how he works in the world. We want to hold on to his promises. We come to Christ because, as Jesus himself said in John 15, his word abides in us. And we remain in his love as we're obedient to that word, as he kept his father's commandments and remained in the father's love. And in that remaining in his love and in his word abiding in us, we have joy that transcends this world. So it is possible to read scripture wrongly, as we just noted. It's possible to read scripture for the wrong reasons and without a sincere love for God. Jesus said in John 5, 39... He said that you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. But again, it's these that reveal me. Me who is standing here before you. Me who is talking to you. Me who is revealing God to you. Me who is the very presence of God before you. He says you're unwilling in verse 40 to come to me so that you may have life. He says I don't receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have life. The love of God within yourselves. You love the glory that you receive by being an erudite and respected teacher. You love the glory and the self-confidence you have because of your supposed righteousness that God will set you on the basis of. But you do not love God. You do not come to Scripture to know Him. You do not come to Scripture to learn about Him. You do not come to Scripture to have Him shape you and form you into his likeness, you come for wrong motives. And so he says, you, you know, the, they knew the scriptures, but they did not know God. And that is how it is for many Christians. 
who can be very dedicated to Bible reading and have their character unchanged and unshaped by the Spirit of God because there's not yet life. So it's possible to read Scripture. It's possible to even enjoy Scripture with spiritual blindness and an unregenerate heart. The question is, is is it transforming me? And when I come to Scripture, is it because I truly see Christ there and God there? I want to meet with him there. I expect to have fellowship with him. I want fellowship with him. Is it because when I come to Scripture and I read the Psalms, it gives voice to my own spiritual experience? Because I can identify with those words about hungering for God. I can identify those words about being in a spiritual desert where my song, my soul longs to be restored. I can identify the words about the blessedness of forgiveness. I can identify those words about crying out to the mercy and the grace of God because of my sin. I can identify with the psalmist when he says, I want to be cleansed. I can identify with the writer of scripture when I say that they were sustained by the longing for the promises of God or where he says, your greatness is unsearchable. You see, the believer comes to Scripture because God reveals himself there, and the heart that is alive to him experiences him there, sees him there. It feels the weight of his promises. It feels the conviction of sin. It's met with the desire to conform to righteousness as the inspired word of God that rebukes, corrects, and trains in righteousness. And so scripture has this alivedness to it, this life to it. And when we don't feel that life, our souls are dismayed and we plead with God and we say, God, restore my soul again. Help me. Make your promises real to me. Show me Christ because I cannot stand to live without a nearness to you. And we don't do that by going off in the woods and waiting for some experience. We go to his word and we plead with him on the basis of who he is and what he said. And so to love God is to love the place where he is revealed. It is to love the place where Christ is revealed. It is to love him with open heart and open eyes who has redeemed us and told us about that redemption and told us about the one who redeemed us and told us about how to live with him in his word. And so if we love God, we love his word and we want to spend time with him in his word. And that means that we want to make decisions where we don't spend time with other things. That means we make decisions to get up earlier in the morning. We make decisions to turn off our phones. We make decisions to not do other things so that we might spend time with him. Because we love him. If you had a spouse or a friend or someone that you said you loved and you didn't want to be with them, you took no opportunity to meet with them, you took no delight in their presence, how real would that love be to them? It would be merely words. And so the question there is then, do we love Scripture? Do we come to it because we want to meet with Christ? We want to learn about him. Do our reading habits, our listening habits, our conversations, and so forth reflect this? Fourthly, and this goes with it, we desire then prayer and fellowship. If we love God, we desire prayer and fellowship. One thing that really stands out, well, throughout all, but particularly in the Gospels, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was John leaning on the breast of Jesus, who's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved because he was overwhelmed with the love experience that he had with Christ. He wanted to be near him. Peter, as we looked at, even even though he was convicted of his sin, when they said Jesus was on the shore, it is the Lord, what did he do? He jumped in the water and he swam to him. Why? Because he loved the Lord. He wanted to be near him. Scripture describes our adoption with this inward reality that we are those who cry out, Abba, Father, which is a term of endearment, a nearness. 
So if we love Christ and we love God, we want to be near him. We want to be with him. We want to spend time in his presence. Simply put, those who love Christ and who know him want to be near Christ. And that is, by the way, the blessing and the wonder and the end of the covenant. The very end of all things is that we would be reconciled to God in the fullness of our experience so that heaven and earth would be one and God would dwell among his people and we would have eternal fellowship with him. That's the end of the book, the end of Revelation. You see it in the heart of the psalmist. We looked at it when we looked up through the psalms, some of the selected. Psalm 84, I long to be there. I'm jealous of the bird who makes his nest in the rafters of the temple. Why? Because even that bird gets to be near God. And I long for that kind of nearness. We feed on him. We love him. It means then that we long for his return. We long to be with him. You know, it's really an incredible statement when somebody can say, well, I, I just, I, or if you, even to feel it in your heart, I really wish Jesus would delay his return for because there's some things I still want to do here. No, it shouldn't be like that. The Christian longs for the return of Christ. One said this. Good book. We have a copy in the library. It's called How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? But he says this. The author does. The Christian can hardly wait for Jesus to fulfill his promise to return to the earth. The one who knows Christ often thinks, I wish he could come today. I wish he would come today. Trying to imagine the glorious place where he or she will spend eternity with Christ daydreams about what life will be like in a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus reigns. Like a bride anticipating her wedding day, so those who are part of the bride of Christ, the church, expectantly wait their union with Jesus Christ at his return. We long to be with him. We go to prayer and fellowship. And what do you want when you go to pray? What do you want? Like, seriously. So when you go to pray, what is it that your soul really wants and desires? Do you desire to check that off so you can move on? Do you desire only to make sure you have that time so you can get what you want? Or when you go to God in prayer, to what you really want, what you really desire, what really satisfies you is that you might have a sense of having met with God in his word. You having met with him where his presence was real to you, where his word and his truth was alive in you. Is that what you want? That's what a believer wants. That's what we want more than anything. We can go, it's kind of like, we can go and even know that, hey, I don't know if my request will be answered. I don't know of any of that, but I know that I've met with the Lord. I, was in, I spent time in his presence, so my soul can leave satisfied, satisfied. Whether he gives me the thing, my request of my lips, I don't know. But he gave me the desire of my heart, which was his presence, and that's all I need. So a Christian wants to spend prayer and time with him in prayer and in fellowship. That's a part of the love of God. Quickly, number five. Uh, if we love God, then we want to serve him and especially other believers. If we love God, we love his people and we want to serve his people and be with them. John 13, Jesus says, after he washed the disciples' feet, which was anticipating his greater act of service to go to the cross, to remove not merely the uncleanliness of their bodies, but the pollution and the corruption of their soul, of sin, that he would bear on the cross, and the foot washing was merely anticipating that. It was a pre-event to say, this 
is what service looks like. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. They're not going to fully understand what that meant. If he says, even as I have loved you, they're going to immediately think of the foot washing, which is the example that he gave in terms of taking the lowest and menial place of service with fellow believers. But what gives that its power, what gives that its weight, what really gives that its meaning and enables the believer is because of the greater act of service at the cross, where he was going to soon, before their very eyes be betrayed, have his beard plucked, a crown of thorns, whipped near to death, hung on a cross, mocked, spit upon, slapped, beaten, and then abandoned by the Father in some spiritual sense as he experienced the hell we deserve on earth in his own body so that he might absorb the wrath of God who was pleased to crush him if he might render himself as a guilt offering in our place. And understanding that, he says, the love that I have shown you, then when you grasp that, you can wash one another's feet. You can take the place of a servant. You can have the heart of him who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Now we're growing in this. And he says here that that kind of love is centered on your love for one another. He says in verse 35, by this All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A holy love, a sanctifying love, a delighted love. And that is actually at the heart of what it means to obey him. Let me just give you one quick reference here in 1 John chapter 5. This is is one of those passages of scripture that always uh, is, is, it's shocking in just the way that the logic gets argued. But he says this in First John 5. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So there's the basic principle. If you love God, you love those who are in the family of God. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, the Holy Spirit is himself prompting you toward love towards those who belong to Christ. He says earlier in the letter that there's only two conditions. You love or you hate. If you don't love your brethren, you hate your brethren. And so we are to love our brethren. But here's what's interesting. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Now, what would you fill in the blank? This is the part that always uh, surprises me. By this we know that we love the children of God. What would you fill in the blank there? Well, I serve them. Well, I do this. I do, 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 do. And he says, no, this is how you, he'll say similar things in other places. But here he says, how do you know you love the children of God? Well, we know by this, when we love God and we keep his commandments. Now, what's the connection? How do we know that we love the children of God? And he immediately switches it back over to say, when we love God. We love the children of God. We know that when we love God and keep his commandments. Because what does God command us to do? To love one another. To love one another. To love one another based on the love that we've received. Him who loved us first. We love Because he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so when we love the God who has redeemed us, then we obey the God who has redeemed us. And in obeying him, we love the brethren. Amazing. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, he says after that, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, in keeping his commandments and obeying him, we do not find discouragement of heart, but that's where true Christian joy lies. Where we find discouragement and misery is when we're walking in disobedience. 
That's the misery of it. Okay, again, finally on this point. The lastly is obedience. And really, we could have spent the whole time on this. Because at the end of the day, the ultimate expression of our love for God, the ultimate proof of our love for God is this. You ready? We obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's that simple. And it's not keep my commandments. Notice there is a connection here. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Right? The rich young ruler said, all these things I have kept from my youth up. But he did not love God because he was not willing to lose it to follow Christ. The Pharisee that prayed in the temple in Luke 18 says, all of these things that I've done, but he did not love God. It is obedience that flows out of a love for God that is itself the product of understanding the grace of God in Christ, the person of Christ, and his redeeming work for us on the cross. So Paul could say, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So to say if we love him and we keep his commandments, it is meaning the commandments are kept because we love him. And we love him, why? Because he laid down his life for us. So he could say to the Corinthians in chapter 5, the love of Christ constrains us. They're most likely speaking of the love that we have received in Christ is what is the motivator and the guide and the direction of our service to him. Again, if I could quote from Edwards, he says this, gracious affections go to the very bottom of the heart and take hold of the very most inner, inmost springs of life and activity. Herein chiefly appears the power of true godliness in its being effectual in practice. In other words, it doesn't matter what you say, John would tell the church in 1 John, it's not the one who says I have come to know him, but what? The one who keeps his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments the one who has an incredibly wonderful worship experience, who cries every single time and feels really close to God with hands raised in the air and emotions at their highest peak, and yet leaves and does not inwardly feel constrained to live in obedience to the one he just praised, is fooling themselves. They're lying. Not my words, biblical words. They are a liar, and the truth is not in them. The truth is not in them. So the ultimate expression of the reality of whatever emotion we experience, whatever Christian experience we have, the reality of it, whether it's true or not, is this simple. Does it produce obedience and holiness in my life? Period. So do we love God? Well, we know by whether or not we obey him. And let me take it one step further, and I'm only going to mention this. It's not only do we obey him, but we desire, as if it were some forced thing, again, his commandments aren't burdensome, but it is that we desire to please him. I'm just going to list these references. Colossians 1.10, 2 Corinthians 5.9, Romans 12.2, and other places. The emphasis there is that we desire to please him. We want to do it because it's pleasing to him. If you have a significant other, again, a loved one in your life, a friend or whatever, you want to please that person. You want to do the things for them that they will enjoy. You want to eat at the places they want to eat and have the conversations and do the activities that they want to do. Why? Because they enjoy it and your joy comes from them enjoying it. At a far more profound sense, that's how it should be for those who love God with Christ is that we do it because he's pleased that we do it, because it brings him delight when we do it. It is that we want to please him. 
We want to please him. Lastly, we'll just skip to the end here. How then, though, and I want to mention, make sure I get this. But we have the reality of remaining sin. So all of those things are without question, without the least bit of compromise, are realities that are in a believer's heart. And they are evident. You can see them. They are experienced. But they're not experienced as perfectly and as consistently as we would want them to be. But that in and of itself is a sign of a believer because they're bothered by that. That's part of the longing for heaven. You, if somebody gave you a big wad of gold right now, you might be excited. In heaven, you wouldn't care. You couldn't care less. There's streets of more pure gold. You won't even notice them other than if they reflect the glory of God. Right? The whole value system is put into its proper place of our affections. But so then how do we have, how do we deal with love and remaining sin? We live in an in-between time where we've been saved to these glorious realities, but we don't yet have the full experience. That's why every Christian feels a tension in the heart, and that goes back to even being separate from the world. You feel the tension because there is some element, even within the truest believer, of a love to the world. There is some way that that can appeal to the flesh, but a believer hates the fact that it does. They don't want to give in to it. They, by the Spirit, want to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So they're wrestling and they're fighting and they're growing and they're failing and they're repenting and so on and so forth because we live in this in-between time. The quintessential example of this in the Old Testament is David who was described after a man, a man after God's own heart and yet he committed one of the most colossal failures and sin in all of the Old Testament with Bathsheba and with her husband Uriah. He says repeatedly as you read the Psalms, for example, I think it's Psalm 38, my iniquities have gone over my head. He knew what it was to sin. The quintessential example is in the New Testament is Peter who loved Christ, who had a sincere love for him, who wanted to follow him, and yet he failed so terribly he actually denied the Lord with an oath at his hour of greatest need. But what's interesting about that is how the Lord restored him. That's the part I'm going to focus on. How did the Lord restore him? He restored Peter by drawing back out of Peter's heart and his own experience the fact that he truly did love him. Because that's at the heart of his spiritual life. Jesus knew that he had failed. Jesus knew where he was. He wanted to restore Peter and empower him for the ministry that he had called him to by reminding him of his love for him. In this case, of Peter's love for Christ. Of course, that is already demonstrated by the Lord's love for Peter and that he had died with him and sought him out to restore him. And so it's so precious he focuses on Peter's love three times. He asks him, do you love me? We remember that. Three times Peter refused to say the words that, that he loved him. He says, you know I love you, Lord. You know I love you. And yet he said it with a degree of doubt. He said it with a degree of uncertainty. He certainly knew he couldn't boldly proclaim that after his own actions. But then finally, having denied the Lord three times and the Lord having asked him three times, do you love me? Peter said that he was grieved because he said to him the third time, because he kept asking this, because Peter knew that his love was in doubt to Peter's own conscience. 
But Peter knows the reality of his heart. And so when he said the third time, Jesus did, do you love me? He said to this, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And that, beloved, is for us a great amount of encouragement. Because Peter could not point to the events of his life and say, you know I love you. Look at what I did. I stood up for you when I was threatened. He'd say, I know I love you, but I abandoned you. You know that I love you, but... I denied you. So even though he knew he had failed colossally in his own life, he also knew that he was broken for that because he did love the Lord. And so he appeals to the Lord and he says, Lord, you know all things. He appeals to his omniscience, to his perfect knowledge. Peter did love the Lord. He did long to be with him. He did want to be restored to obedience to him. He did end up fulfilling his ministry. And how tender it is for the Lord to remind him of this so that Peter could know that the Lord knows that I love him because the Lord has sought me out. The Lord has restored me. I just needed to be reminded of that. And so that's how graciously the Lord deals with us as his failing and faltering sheep so often. And so there it is. What is the heart of what it means to know him and what it means to serve him? It is to love the Lord Jesus Christ. It means we'll desire his fellowship We'll obey him. We'll love the people who know him. It means that we will confess sin inwardly and outwardly. It means we long to be in his presence in prayer and fellowship. And it means that we hate everything that breaks that up. Let me end with this quote. This is by J.C. Ryle. Some of you are familiar with him in a book, Holiness. He says, he feels that he, this is the believer, he feels that he is daily washing away his many shortcomings and infirmities and pleading his soul's cause before God. He is daily supplying all the needs of his, all of his needs, providing him with an hourly provision of mercy and grace. He is daily leading him by his spirit to a city of habitation, bearing with him when he is weak and ignorant, raising him up when he stumbles and falls, protecting him again from his many enemies and preparing an eternal home for him in heaven. Can you wonder that the true Christian loves Christ? And that is, in fact, the joy that we have when we gather together around the Lord's table, we're reminded of those things. And when we gather together as the Lord's people to worship him, we're reminded of those things. We are those who are together on this journey to serve and to trust and to be faithful to the one that we love. The question is, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Not what do you do, that list. Do you love Christ? Do those realities that are listed seem strange to you? Do they seem distant? Do they just seem like another sermon that you'll forget as soon as you leave? Or does it stir something within you to say, I want that to be more true of my life? Yes, I know that experience. Yes, I want change. If it doesn't, then... You can only, or I can only say to you that there is a broad path that leads to destruction. And it's not the one who says I've come to know him, it's the one who loves him and demonstrates that in their affections and in their life. And so, but for those of us who do know him and by God's grace are kept and preserved by him in spite of ourselves and want to grow in these things, we have great joy that we are kept by the sovereign one who has shown his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me pray, and then we'll close. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for Christ, 
And Lord, this love is not produced by us. It is a fruit of your work, Holy Spirit, in us. We, by nature, do not love you. We, by nature, would deceive ourselves in a thousand and one ways. If there's any evidence of true love for you, it is because you have given it to us. And we take great confidence that you who have sovereignly worked in our hearts to open our eyes to the glory of Christ, to love the word where we meet with him, will sovereignly preserve and keep us, convicting us of sin, upholding us in our weakness, drawing us always back to Christ when we stray, and keeping in us a love for the one who redeemed our souls and whom we long to be with forever, namely you, Lord. These things I pray in your name. Amen.